0: Welcome to Season 3, Episode 11 of A Passion to Serve. Felipe Lopez Esteta, Executive Director of the Hispanic Latino Commission of Michigan, was part of the Toxic Google seminar series. Toxic Google provides a platform for influential thinkers, creators, makers, and doers to discuss their work, their lives, and what drives them to shape our world. Felipe took the opportunity to share some of his experiences as a migrant farm worker and how it has influenced both his personal and professional decision making. Enjoy.
1: Perfect. All right. Welcome to Talks at Google. I'm Dominique Earle. I'm sure I've met most of you here. I'm here with the executive director of the Hispanic Latino Commission of Michigan, Dr. Felipe lopez Sustaita, to share his story of the immigrant worker experience from the field to the Michigan State Capitol. Let's please give him a big Google welcome.
2: Thank you,
1: Of course, Um, and it really wouldn't be a true Google welcome without an icebreaker. (laughs) So um, I'd love to kick it off with asking you, as a second generation Latina myself, living in the US, I feel there is a certain obligation to keep my Latinidad alive, whether that be speaking Spanish, um, teaching others about my identity, dancing, advocating for the community, et cetera, or even carrying out traditions. And with with the Day of the Dead just recently finishing the last few days, can you talk to us about maybe one of your favorite family traditions that you carry out to keep your culture alive?
2: Yeah, so family traditions. Um, I always think of Christmas. You know, we were so poor that um, tamales, right? So you, you unwrap something the next day. So we didn't have actual presents. But the tamales was always a good sign of um, that we were doing good. We might not gotten gotten the Air Jordans or the are the beautiful things that that we could have dreamed of, but we had tamales, and that was it's something that, that my mom still does, and it's a tradition that that makes me remember of um, you know of and still even today like that, that's still um, most important thing so, so thank you, yeah, for embracing the Day of the dead and um, you know it's just part of our culture, you know being Latino Latina in this country so absolutely,
1: thank you. Thank you. Great, so I'd love to dive right into the topic for here today um, by going back to the beginning of your story before you accomplished your career and your multiple um, degrees that you've received. Can you tell us about your childhood and how you became a part of the migrant worker community in the United States?
2: Yes, yeah, so, so um, and, and I just want to acknowledge too, I want to thank Dominica. Uh, she was at a, I was a keynote speaker uh, for Cesar Chavez, who, who is a, a legend and an advocate for for Latinos, and we were at Eastern Michigan University. There was about 500 people, and that day I just felt, you know, the Holy Spirit. I, um, I felt, you know, that um, that I had a mission to go there and inspired some of the young people from all over the state, young people. And so I want to acknowledge. So thank you very much for making this happen and for being there, and for Google to to you know to to be so involved with a community that that, that you happen to be there that day so so going back so i i was born in in Matehuala San Luis Potosi Mexico as the youngest of 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 12 really but eight of us lived and we lived in poverty um, we grew up you know poor but i was raised here in the US i came to this country and um, luckily, my father was a bracero back in, in World War II, um, when the men, American men, were going to war, um, they brought in Mexican men to work in, in the agriculture, and so that was our first glimpse of how we even ended up in the U.S. It was through that journey that brought us to uh, to America, and so my journey began since I can remember. My entire childhood was working in the field, so we. And, and I don't know how, but all of the people in, in my village would move around. You know, we, we'd move around. We'd go, go to Tennessee, Georgia, Michigan. And we picked um, everything from onions to oranges. And in Tennessee, we planted tobacco. We picked strawberries and onions in, in Georgia and then up in Michigan. So that's how, that's how it started. I mean, I, I don't know. In this country, if you don't have education, I mean, I, you know, the fields is, is a good place. And, um, and that's, you know, that's how I started.
1: Great, thank you. Um, so can you give us some context as somebody who has lived what it means to be a migrant worker? Who is a migrant worker? And, and how do they get here to the United States? Why do they come?
2: Yeah, so migrant workers, there's different types of migrant workers. There's, um, you have a first generation, second, third generation. Sometimes migrants, that's just a way of life. Um, they, they've been here for five, six generations. They just it's, I don't know if they enjoy it or if they don't know anything better, but um, for us, I can tell you that um, it was really hard. I mean, I, I, I always tell this story when I talk to the young people that um, I slept in the floor. I mean, being the youngest of eight, sometimes a room was as big as a, a, a classroom in a college setting, like just half of the room. And eight of us lived there and, and and so I was the youngest one, so i I knew my role. It was sleeping in the floor all the way till I came to college and um And then just the poverty that goes with it, like the the long hours I remember when I was twelve years old, eleven years old is when I started working 16 to eighteen hour shifts and and that's why the the, the office that I'm in is so important is to regulate those um those laws that um, young people shouldn't be working you know that long. But who, a migrant is just somebody that moves from from state to state, or maybe they're seasonal. They live here in Michigan. Maybe they're just picked during the season. Um, so that that's kind of, um, and they come from all over the place. They don't just look like me. There's there's a big population of Haitians that are coming now to the U. S. And it's being used as a as a, you know as a major. Um, forced now, like the Haitian the community. And, and then, obviously, the Mexican community has been along for very long, um, since before Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta. So,
1: Great. Thank you. And do you mind giving us a quick recap on who Cesar Chavez was for those of us who may not have heard of him
2: before? Yeah, so Cesar Chavez was, um, he was a veteran. He, 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 he was born in Arizona. He, he went to the military. Um, I think his family um, ha- went through a financial crisis, kind of similar to what it's now. And that, that took him and his family into working in the fields. And that's when he saw first firsthand how the inequalities of migrant workers, how they were b- being brought in and weren't being paid, or weren't being paid enough, or living in terrible conditions. So he was really fought. And and he fought in a in a very quiet, very similar to Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, he didn't fight with, with 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 his fist or with his. He fought with his mind and his um, humbleness, and I think that's what we can remind him of. Uh, of a fighter that fought, you know, for his people, uh, very kind, and um, that's who um, Cesar Chavez was. Great, thank you.
1: so although invisible to most people, the presence of migrant workers um, in many rural communities throughout the nation is undeniable, mm-hmm. since hand labor is necessary for production of blemish free fruits and vegetables that consumers demand, why are they so invisible?
2: So the invisibility, I think it's intentional, so like I said, I, I've moved around in different cities and in, in Tennessee, we were very hidden from from everywhere I think. In this country, we want—you know—we want to you know, eat our salads, we want to eat our oranges, our apples, and but yet we're hidden in some of the communities. Maybe it's because of zoning, or maybe it's for whatever reason. Um, maybe there's this perception that 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 the property loses value when we're there. Um, whatever it is, but it, it, we do tend to be almost hidden in some in some cities so p- people almost invisible like we come out on Sunday to do laundry and and in some cities um, people you know go, go wild on, on Facebook or, or Twitter like all oh, all these Mexicans are in, in shopping at Meijer. and you hear I hear those stories constantly traveling through the state of um, people that are unaware um, yet they don't realize that we're the ones providing the food you know, so that people eat. And um, so it's a very interesting you know, dichotomy that that's happening. Um, but, but yeah, we, uh, I have uh, two brothers, um, one of them that recently stopped working. He got injured, and he had been working his entire life. And then I have another one that was still picking apples. And, um, and nothing has changed. You know, it's been, I don't know, I'm 34 years old since I was little. And there's, they always pick somebody else to come and do the work. So it hasn't changed a lot. Thank you.
1: So it's a great paradox of our food system that the very people who work to feed the US struggle to feed their own families. Farm workers are among the poorest workers in the country. Child farm workers risk their safety, health, and education working for fields because their parents can't earn a living wage. Hazardous conditions are routine, as I'm sure you're familiar with, including pesticide exposure, extreme heat, lack of shade, and sometimes inadequate drinking water. Did you ever witness or hear of any of these conditions?
2: Yes, and and again, this was uh, in the middle of the 90s early 90s when I, I was first exposed. Um, and I remember as a child, you know, uh, playing through, through the fields and, and, and the airplanes would come and pesticide. And so I'm sure I was exposed. And, you know, it's heartbreaking thinking back of, of um, you know, pregnant women out there working and the children and the effects that, that it had. Um, you know, I personally, you know, my father, he passed away Uh, when he was 62, so I was 17 years old when he passed away. And I know it's because of the intense work labor, the intense hours. Um, I'm sure that I would pass away, too, if I continue to work 16, 17 hours just my entire life. And so um, I've experienced, like I said, the housing. There was snakes sometimes that we would kill. Um, And no child, I'm sure my parents didn't, didn't, they had a hard time grasping grasping with that, but that has been generations of poverty. I don't know how they grew up, and, and for me it was probably a great living, even if there was snakes or we were in a part of a barn sleeping. It was a lot better than it was in Mexico, so um, so there is still still work that needs to be done. Um, I, I remember, I mean, we the, the trailer, we lived in Colbert, Michigan, and my brother still lives there I remember not having uh running hot water, you know, and it was in the in the one year we stayed it was October, November, December. I had to boil water before I go to school and just put, you know, just to get in and we didn't have no heater and everybody slept in the floor to to be close to the to the heater um the kerosene heater. And so those, those things are still still here. I'm sure they're, they're, there's kids still sleeping in the floor, the housing still, um, no running water. I had to go out into an um, outhouse to go to the bathroom and shower in outside of the house. It, 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 they didn't have that. Um, and this was, again, in my lifetime. And I'm only 34 years old, so I know that it's still out there. And so, so yeah. Thank you for sharing. Oh, no problem.
1: So I'm curious, you spoke a little bit about maybe how your parents might have been feeling. And I'm sure as all of us have been children at one point, and there's things that are covered up that our parents try to make things better, especially when situations maybe aren't as good or what they would hope them to be. Can you speak a little bit to maybe your family or other families' experiences with morale? Um, That's something that I was curious about when researching about migrant workers. Are people optimistic? Are they? Complacent. Like, what is the sentiment around their situation?
2: So for us, it was always um, it was always prayer, La Virgen de Guadalupe, God. You know, uh, my parents had so much faith, and um, and I think that's where my um, my sense of of being that's what carries uh, carried us through this um, energy, this positive energy that things would work out, and so I was always blessed. You know, leaving the house, or you know, in te Percinas, and you're constantly—that's a constant reminder that there's hope. Um, and for us, as Catholics, um, that was something that that I think um, allowed us to survive because it was really—I um, can't imagine—you um, know—if I was barely eating, I don't know if they were eating at all. And so, when you think of that. Um, I remember the cornflakes with water and mixing um, coffee, coffee powder to make milk, and or Valentina. All the Latinos always have Valentina with salt crackers. And I remember those meals. So I can't imagine if I was going through that what my parents were, were struggling with. But there was always, uh, I had a brother um, who also passed away at 43. And I believe it was because of the hard life of working and the pesticides and all this. And he passed away at 43, but he was the life of our family. He was a happy guy. Ismael, uh, he was just, um, you know, I always think of him because he was just so happy. Um, When I was listening to the Google with George Lopez, um, you always have somebody in the family that just brings joy. And, And Ismael was the one. He was always cracking jokes no matter if it was a snake that they caught, and he was trying to scare other kids, um, you know. But he had that sense of of, um, of happiness, and, and to an extent, I think it prepared me um, for going to get a doctor degree. There's no way I could have made it if I didn't have those those struggles of um, of of being in a you know, hoeing or picking something, or asparagus, and looking at the long lines and, and thinking, man, can I make it through those lines? It taught me self discipline to be, to stay, stay in my lane and stay focused on finishing whatever that was. So, but I think faith, uh, if I were to say um, that carried us, I think that was uh, the, the game changer of faith. And that we still have. I talk to my mother every single day. And um, this morning I talked to her. I said, Mom, you know, pray for me. And, um, you know, it's something that I feel like it's like a shield for me, and and respecting other cultures, you know, because I have a lot of friends that are from other other cultures, and and um and I also respect that as well.
1: Great, thank you. Um, you know, I've also always admired. Um, I'm not sure if it's just with Latinos or. People that maybe are underrepresented or other minority groups, this sense of happiness mm-hmm. even when there's nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, I've witnessed that myself with my family in Mexico too, and it's just a really great reminder mm-hmm. and gut check of you know like you know things aren't so bad.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes.
1: And um, not to say that someone's situation is worse or better than someone else's, but in hindsight, you know, all of us here are in mm-hmm. a place of privilege, mm-hmm. and it's always a good reminder to kind of go back to where our roots are from in certain situations. So thank you. Um, So what you were kind of talking about at the end there, I think pivots to my next question for you. Um, Sometimes even the thought of pursuing an education for many marginalized communities can often be seen as foreign, impossible, laughable, or just not like it's not going to happen for you. Mm -hmm. So what was your out? Um, What was your driver? How did you make it into college?
2: So for me, this is—it's going to be a little bit of a longer story, but it's important because I got to pay respect to the folks that have allowed me, you know, this privilege of of being in Google for all, you know, never in my life did I ever imagined that I'd be here with, with, with you or folks listening to to this tape. Is that my sister? Uh, you know, we're very traditional, especially with women. Latina women have it, I think, r- way harder than we do. And my sister. Um, my sisters, all four of them, are tough, strong Latinas. And my mother, of course, we have to look up. But my sister, Myra, um, she, she was the first one to, to came to Michigan State. And it was through night school. We went to night school that one time. And I was like 13 years old, the only time. And that was to make up credits so that I could graduate in three years. And Myra, we met this gentleman named Rudy Hernandez, who who's from southwest Detroit, who, who really set the tone and And Myra was smart enough to get into Michigan state, and so that's how that's how it all started. Myra um, was accepted she made in her mind made this this um, this pledge that she was going to get out of that lifestyle because it is terrible um, when you're out in the uh, dirty all the time and not making any money and just at home and so she she went to college, and it was because of Rudy that gave her that opportunity and again, I believe it's faith. It's Rudy was there that night. If Rudy wasn't there that night, I don't know if we would have been here right now. But Rudy was there, met Myra, and Rudy was one of these educators. I, 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 I love um, higher ed people, um, especially when they go out of their way. Rudy went and, and asked my parents if they could allow Myra to come to Michigan State. And, um, and you know, they, they didn't really want to, but they didn't have a choice. So they said, "I te lo encargo." That's something that Latinos, once they said say that, it's a gold, like l- l- go, right? I te la encargo, and so they did, and um, and that's when my journey began. Basically, I I didn't have a choice. My parents were like, "You gotta go take care of Myra." Not that Myra needed me to take care of her, um, but that's how the Latino mindset is. And so I ended up um, I ended up with a thir- thirteen. I thought was a 13 on my ACT. My, I, I, we checked, my wife checked, and she said I got a 15. So I couldn't even read correctly that I got a 15. And I'll be honest with you. I, again, it was because of Rudy. I got admitted to Michigan State. But I took the test a few days before admissions, and I guessed on everything. And, um, but again, I was blessed that, that it, it came with a package. You accept Myra, you're going to accept Felipe. And so I came in. I couldn't read. I couldn't write. When you're a migrant worker, you leave. Um, In October, you leave the school. And then you you leave to go back home to Texas. And then you leave early. You leave in March. And so you're always making up work. And so oftentimes, that's a blessing, too, because they didn't really pay attention. If I was failing or not, I was always passed. But the unfortunate part is that I couldn't read or write. I didn't know my ABCs. um, but I was very clever and very smart. I made up credits. you know my sister was helping me do my math homework I passed and um, and the rest was history. you know I came came to Michigan State. a lot of tragedies happened like I said my father um, passed away my sophomore year, my brother passed and so there was a lot of tragedies but um, but you know I can always um, look back and that's that's some motivation that um, that people out there are really good people, you know, the the person that I least expected um, came in and gave us this opportunity. And so, yeah.
1: Wonderful, thank you. So for many first-generation students and minorities in general, it's one thing to get into college and then to be accepted, all of that, which is the first step. But there is still a large gap for completion of higher education. Now you've received two degrees, um, two bachelor's, I believe, and as well as a doctorate. Um, can you talk about what drove you to finish not only one but multiple degrees?
2: Yes. Yeah, so like I said, it takes a village to, to do this kind of work. And um, I met a lot of great people. Um, one of my friends, Juan Flores, who came, came with us. Um, you know, we were in remedial math at that. We we didn't even make it to the real classes, right? So we were remedial math, remedial writing. Everything was remedial, and and um, and I could barely pass those classes. But I, you know, I've had Juan. I've had other great people. Uh, my sister Myra was there. I was very antisocial too, um, because of of everything that I mentioned. All the, the the stigma that happens in school, and um, but I've had good people, and I've met great people along the way. Uh, my friend Kelly Simmons, who um, who I met through Myra, working in the the KCP programs. I met my friend Danny, who's here also with me. Um, we we met in Greece and have stayed in touch. And um, I met you know great people like Sean Smith. Um, Daniel Carrion, who works with me in the office, and, and Sean, who, uh, who has had a vision to help students get out of the math and graduate, and you know, my wife. So there's been a lot of pieces, um, my family, obviously, that have been supportive. But the, the, the biggest thing is that I've, also, I've, I've had this, um, this vision, like this law of attraction, that if you think positive, like I, I always think of my brother, Ismael, that sometimes money would just show up out of nowhere. And I would say, like, man, how, how do you do that? Um, he didn't go to school or anything. He didn't even finish high school. He dropped out. But he, he had such positive vibe that the people that would come, everything that he had was just his thinking. He was so positive. And so I started applying that just being being so positive and, and, um, and studying the law of attraction and, and vision boards and everything that I, I said. That, and people would laugh, right? It's laughable. Oh, you're, you're going to do this, you're going to do that. It's laughable. But um, but it, it's happened because of that. Like, I, I was already signing doctor when I was with Danny. We were in Hungary, and I was writing postcards to my sister, writing Dr. Felipe Lopez-Ustaita. And I was barely, you know, trying to get to my, through my bachelor's degree, but I was already envisioning, you know, that I was going to get there. Um, and so... It's almost like it's already happened and it's not there yet, but um, I keep talking about my goals, and sometimes I get flagged for it like oh you you think you're so good or Te crees mucho. It's not that. It's just that um, sometimes we need positive role models. So that's why I, I really appreciate you um, allowing me this platform because that's um, that's what it takes. sometimes we have to put it out there and, and and say that we're gonna if we're gonna conquer the world, right we have to. We have to talk about it and do it. And um, it doesn't mean that it wasn't hard. I mean, academically, if you, can, you, if you can go from not reading or writing, being able to, to finishing in four years, it took a lot of hot, hard work um, going on study abroad. I went to Greece. I went to Ghana and Africa. I went to um, Ukraine and then in Mexico and um, to make up credit so that I could graduate early. And, um, and I was able to get out in, in four, so by the time I was 20 years old, and then I did my master's by 22. And then I had a family, and then I, I went and got my doctorate, and I got it all paid for all my master's, my, um, my doctorate degree. So, um, and again, it, wasn't just, it doesn't, things just don't happen. I, I had it already written that it was gonna be paid and that this was gonna happen. And so that's, um, you know, and, and again, there's so many things. That that I'm I'm sure I'm missing, and and especially the rigor of the classroom, um, and teachers telling me you know just to to quit. And I remember, <laughs> I won't put names out there, but I, I've been told just you know just stop. You're not gonna pass a class, and I refuse. Um, and I think it's that ignorance that has brought me this far is um, the ignorance to accept where you're at, and. Um, and to just say, no, why, why not? If you can do it, if I, if I see other people, if they can do it, why can't I? And so that attitude. And, um, and I'll tell you one, one last story before we go to the next thing. So I remember my senior year, I was 16 years old. I was in covert Michigan. And again, I couldn't read or write. So my teacher gave me an assessment. And I, I remember it vividly. She sat down with me and gave me this assessment. And, and she, she told me, she's like, you're at a third grade level. There's no way. I mean, even my kids now can spell better than I can. And so um, and so if I would have taken that literally, like there was nowhere that I would have ever made it even to graduate high school. But I was too ignorant to know what that meant. And um, I, I'm very thankful for that ignorance as well because it's helped me um, through other difficult times. Um, so yeah, I mean... Is this is, uh, part of it is is luck, a, a lot of luck and hard work, <laughs> yeah.
1: So on this note of, you know, people coming into your life that gave you an opportunity or maybe being a little bit lucky and having that grit to continue despite the challenges, there's a lot of people who, despite maybe having the same outlook, still don't make it. Mm-hmm. Is there a clear distinction between those who kind of make it out versus those who who don't? I mean, is there a big difference that you know of? I'm curious more than anything to know. You know, that's a
2: really, really, really good question because I've met some very successful people. Um, I'm thinking of, um, of a good friend of mine that went migrant as well, ended up going to... Um, to Philadelphia to college, and then ended up, you know, going to get her PhD in Stanford. Out of the same place, there's no difference between, you know, if you're a migrant, you're a migrant. And um, and then I've met others that have gone on to to work with with the governor of Michigan and being their their like chief of staff and have worked for like two three different governments. Same same circumstances, um, but they had that extra. Um, and Elva says it all the time. she says, "I'm made out of titanium. Like no, no ice nor fire can, can take me down. I've been through through the ringers." And so it's that, it's that extra, extra like step, it's that swagger that if you I mean, if you can go through that, uh, what I just told you, like, just being so so, so much in poverty. And and you can survive, and then moving from place to place. Like I think of my parents, moving from their entire family, and not speaking the language, not having a salary, nothing, to bringing us here, and then making us, you know, and and be successful. I think they're people that that don't quit, that um, because because I've thought about that too, because I think of Myra. You know, she was. She works for the for the border patrol, and she ended up going to to the to Washington D.C. and doing work with um, very important work that she was doing. And so, um, I, I often think of that. But I think really it goes back to to at least for me and 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 the people that I know is my family, and then um, our faith. We have faith in um, that things will work out no matter what, how hard it gets, or. No matter and I've always said this, you're gonna have to drag me out dead. I'm not leaving this place until I finish what I came to do. And I get that from my dad as well. Like there was no quit ever. Um, and so but I think there is something it's that titanium, and that's I guess that's the way we're gonna put it, right? If you're built out of titanium, then you can you can go through anything, fire, ice, snow, and nothing's gonna pull you apart. And so that's the way I would say it's like NASA right they went up no who who would have thought that somebody would have ended up in in space and somebody dreamed big they they maybe they were told no, you can't do this, but they 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 refuse to dream big, and I think that's how i I see myself too um and I often tell young people that I talk to we're just getting started, and no matter what, and I tell my kids, if you want to be president of the u s say it, speak it, and then let's go get it like I don't want excuses. I don't care if you fall and you're, 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 you're broken into 100 pieces. You put yourself back, and you go and get it. And, um, and so that's just the attitude, I think, that, um, that I, I learned from all my siblings, all eight of them, um, who taught me lessons. Um, and they built titanium, right? That's what I, I'm made out of. And that's exactly how I feel.
1: Beautiful, thank you. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about how you ended up in a career in government here working with the Hispanic Latino Commission of Michigan, um, what your role is also as the executive director?
2: Yes, that's an excellent question. I always ask myself that as well, (laughs) because I went into higher education. So I did an undergrad in criminal justice, then I, I did a master's in clinical social work, and then I did a doctorate in education. And I've worked as a therapist, I've worked as an academic advisor, I've taught, and then I end up in government. And um, not really knowing why or how, or how that even happens, right? It's like a puzzle. But I've always said this, and I, I constantly say this to my kids and to my friends, is that I work for God. And so there was, there's probably a reason why I'm here. It's, um, and I came at a very critical time in 2016 is when I started. And the Latino community um, is very crucial like with everything going on. I think I was built, like I said, out of titanium to take the the roles that are going on, the the issue that we have with education, the issue that we have with with businesses, with immigration. And if anybody was 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 tested to get there, I, I, I felt like it was a privilege and an honor for me, especially coming into this country. Um, you know, and, and being undocumented and, and and you know, understanding the, the migrant fields. And understanding, too, to a certain extent, like the, the, the hoods. Um, because I grew up in it's a barrio. That, that's the other piece that, that I haven't talked about. But we're, growing up in a is rough, too. It's, there's filled with gangs and, and filled with drugs. Luckily, I never got involved with any of that. Mine was pity, it was just hanging out with, with people and maybe fighting in school here and there. But it was never big time, so I never really talk about it. Um, but I, I, if anybody was, was, was prepared to, to take on this role, I felt like it was, it was God putting me in this position to go and do it. And I remember, um, and so this position, what it entails is, is advising the governor, advising the legislature, and then advising um, the state departments on Latino issues. So I travel all over the state. I've put in about close to 35,000 miles going from city to city with the most vulnerable people. And again, that's again, that's a craft to be able to go with the most vulnerable people and sit with them in their homes. And even, even for them to allow me to come into their homes has been a huge deal, because that's the only way I can advise um, the governor and the, and the legislature, is to let them know, look, these are real stories. And I can name names. I can name places where I'm at. Um, so I, I, I think I serve as a linkage to, um, to what I'm doing. And so, um, it's very complicated work, um, but but I, and I feel like I'm growing and learning for something that whatever's coming next. And so that's um, that's really what, what the, the the job entitles. and that's how I ended up. It was never planned. It was never something that I thought of. My plan, uh, you know, after I got my doctorate in community college leadership, was going to. Um, to, for the presidency, for a community college presidency. And that's another one that people sometimes laugh. They're like, oh, that's impossible. Oh, well, it's not impossible. I did my dissertation, and I went and visited these people that have done it. And I did my homework, right? So you, you figure out how other people did it, and then you go back, and then you start working. It's like a lab, and that's what I did. I did my dissertation. I interviewed all these successful people. I came back and built my own recipe. And um, mine has looked different. I came to government. Others have gone directly through the pipeline. And very fortunate, I met a Latina that became a president at like 33. And um, those are the kind of people, right, we're out there. And um, I talked to her. I listened to her story. And, um, and then go back and get to work. It's like, again, it's a lab, a never ending lab. And uh, that's what has been helpful, is also to use my, my resources and then you know, to apply them and and be the best at at what we do. And so that's, I know that's a long answer, but that's.
1: (laughs) No, they're great answers. (laughs) Thank you. Mm -hmm. Um, So you spoke a little bit about how you connect with these communities. Um, We do a lot of diversity and inclusion work here at Google. Mm -hmm. So all the employee resource groups that we have usually have um, like a pillar that owns community impact. How do you go into these communities as some as someone who might seem as a person in power and connect with them? Are there strategies that you have? How do you best really get to the core and become a trusted person to these communities?
2: Yeah, that's that's an excellent question because um, you can't teach right being um, humble, like that's a first step. Uh, in whatever community, whether it's, it's a Jewish community, whether it's, it's a Latino community, the Caucasian community, you got to come in um, knowing your place. You have to be humble. And when I go into these communities, because again, I, I'm like code switching all the time. I could be going to, um, to a predominantly black neighborhood, but still um, representing you know, the Latino community for, uh, for alliances. And with the Jewish community, the Latino community, just alliances. So the first thing is humble, knowing, knowing um, that I'm not better than everybody, or that I'm not um, anything. You know, our community is very hard to crack, and so especially with the times right right now, people don't trust people. If you come in, like even if you're going to for voting, and they won't open the door. I, I still don't open my door. You know, I'm still not I'm hundred percent. Um, you know, secure. So, so for me, it's always been, um, and meeting people where they are. Like I sometimes I go to a factory, or I'll go with um, to the schools and make myself visible. But the best thing for me has been to go with a trusted person in the community, like the person that already. There's no, I don't have the time to to be that person to make to go. You know, to I don't know Alpina like 20 times from Lansing. I don't have that. So, I have to do my research and figure out who is a person that's the most trusted. make that that connection, and my job is to make sure that that we have a connection right there because if they don't open their doors, nobody is going to open the doors to me so that's how I've been doing it, whether it's Flint, whether it 's Detroit, whether it's um, Ben Harbor. I have to go with a trusted person, and then that's how I create um, that's how they sponsor me right so Google now so if if um it's like google if 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 I go to another city like um california like they and I go and ask for something maybe you know i've worked done something with them and and did good by my word um that is very helpful and so that's how i've I've done it It's through um understanding who who the real champion of the community is and then going and and then just um and then going there after that, then it's up to me i I literally sometimes have thirty seconds to make a connection with these folks. And my, my, my ability to speak Spanish has, has helped tremendously. because, And my ability that I was born in, a, in another country, and I understand the fear that you have or what you do, that gives me like more brownie po- points too. And, and I never abuse that. You know, I never um, take that for granted. I understand that that's personal and private, and, and that's how I operate.
1: Great, thank you. So I'm gonna end off on one last question, and then we'll hand it over to the audience for some live Q and A. Perfect. What sense of responsibility do you feel? Um, you know, often I can speak for myself too. My parents' conditions are are not what I have today. I think that's true for many immigrant second generation people here in the states. So, do you? F- what do you feel like you owe to your community? What is I don't know like your north star and all of this, yes. and how do you give back? how often do you visit home like what is your contribution to pay back to where you came from
2: yeah i owe everything to my community um to my family to my ancestors you know who who sacrificed so much and 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 if i think i had it back you know i just think back 60 years and i don't know what they were going through but i have a lot and um a lot of debt you know and i have goals you know, written down for the next two years of raising $100,000 for scholarships. I have an obligation to make sure that anybody that wants to go to school has an opportunity. I'm actually on the works, and this is something that I've been talking to to, to, to my friend Danny Rosenberg about, and Juan and Kelly, about writing a book, and, and those proceeds going to help, um, to help my community, right, so that others get opportunities. But more than that, um, going out into the actual communities and talking to the young people that have no hope or, or don't see people that look like them. And so I, I've been more, being more intentional about doing that, going out to places where nobody visits. And, um, and that's where the law of attraction, right? That's where it happens. So um, I have a friend, Eric Thomas, that's doing some work. He does it all over the world. He invited me to go. Um, to to Las Vegas and to to really work with the youth there, and and he said, man, they they it's it's some of the the schools toughest schools that I've been to in this country, and so I'm excited about that. Putting myself in a pit with a lion right on a snowy day like the book, in a pit <laughs> in a pit with a lion on a snowy day is putting yourself in situations that are uncontrollable, and um, and do the work right if if. If if the person that that did NASA wasn't willing to take risks, um, then we wouldn't have that. So that's a, that's how I feel as an obligation to go out, and um, and and just risk and sometimes maybe things that haven't been done, just try them. And so I, again, I, just a huge obligation. And for me, it's education. That's a it's a it's a pathway out of poverty. And so, so but yeah, I owe everything I have. Um, to folks that gave me scholarships that gave me opportunities, KCP paid for my my doctor degree, and then there's so many people that i 'm thinking about Dr. Tom Rios, Dr. Margie Rodriguez, Lasage, Dr. Hall that have been you know in my life that have pushed me to to think bigger, to dream big, to not settle for for anything and and my wife too, who always is is on me and to do more, to give more give till it hurts, right? Like we have a, a commissioner, um, Jesse, um, who said, I wanna give till it hurts. And so when you give, you receive. And so that's how I felt. Like I've, I've been so blessed and so I wanna give. And so more than I can you know, give. <laughs>
1: Great, thank you. Um, so I would love to start off the QA. and a Something that I was thinking about last night um, when preparing for the talk was as people who maybe have a better circumstance than our parents, ancestors, grandparents before us, how do we teach the sense of grit, like this sense of titanium that you were talking about? Um, I think that that's something I wonder too. Like I, When I get married one day and maybe have children, how am I going to teach that drive? Um, so you have children of your own, yes. so I'm wondering how do you teach that? Is how do you teach that culture or that ability to continue no matter what? And yeah, how do we pass that forward?
2: Yeah, so I have four children: Felipe, Amancio, Sion, and Iladio, and they—that's what I'm—I'm I'm trying to to teach because my father did such a great job, and like I said, he passed away at 17. His dad passed away at 17, and I want to break that chain. And but what my dad did in those few years that I had him was um, he taught me how to, how to have faith. You know, I n- I've never seen anybody that have so much faith and be praying for his family. And I'm sure sometimes we, we didn't know how to eat, what we were going to eat the next day. But he was there praying. And, and I'll tell you something, we never um, didn't have food on the table. Whether I don't know if they were eating or not, but um, so that faith. And that's something that I teach my children, is to have faith. And then the work ethic. Um, You can't expect great results if you don't put in the work. So I, um, we put them in in, in martial arts. You know something that I didn't have, um, that I didn't have access to. Like the Y, um, they also go to the Y the camps. I always tell them, uh, the only camps I went with migrant camps, right, moving around, going going to all these camps. So you guys get to go to swimming camp. So and teaching them the value of that, I take them. Not only do I take them to the YMCA camps, but I take them to the to go pick strawberries. Go pick blueberries, apples. Like they know where where their parent, where their dad comes from. They know when they go and visit their cousins that there's not a lot. They might not get a lot of gifts still to this day. They might just get tamales, and that's okay. Um, Don't get too high up there and thinking that you're so good that just because you get good presents from us doesn't mean that when you go to your place you you might not get anything, and that's okay. So teaching them that sense of 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 appreciation for what they have and then what they have when they go out there. And then more about giving than, than, than just asking for. And so taking them to the homeless shelter and um, showing them strong movies, you know, that are powerful, that will pierce their soul, even at a, at a young age. Um, those are the things that I've, you know, I've, I've thought, thought about. And, um, and then I have a band of brothers, too, that we meet, we pray and we talk life, and I learn from them um, how to be a better father. Cause again, I don't have, uh, you know, I, I don't have mine here physically. Uh, I had I have my father-in-law who's a great father, and so those are the type of things. Um, if you want to elevate your game, you gotta surround yourself by by greatness, right? And so that's what what we try to do, and then and then pass it on to the kids. Um, they have the question for them is not, am I going to college? They're going to college, like they're already with their mom. She's working on her PhD. My wife Danielle, and 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 this morning when they were doing their prayer, my 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 wife left to Puerto Rico this morning, and they're they're praying for her mom. I hope my mom's good. And so they're they're learning that sense of of um, awareness, like take care of people and and be good. So um, I'm trying my best. It is very difficult because I can't simulate living in the hood and and picking up a fight just. So that I don't get picked on, you know, they're not gonna have to live, live like that, or, or you know, cornflakes with water. They don't have to worry about that. We have a, f- a refrigerator full of milk, <laughs> you know, that they can, they can do that. But as much as I can, and telling them stories, like, look, man, we grew up poor, so appreciate it, and, and the fact too that I don't have any pictures from my childhood, um, you know, they can't even see that. They don't. <laughs> Uh, I don't know how I looked when I was little, and so they have all kinds of pictures, right? Even they're in daycare, they're already selling you pictures. We didn't have that. You know, we couldn't afford that. It was eating or that picture. So I'm um, just teaching them those things. That's a long, long answer, but. <laughs>
0: thank you. <laughs> yeah,
2: no problem.
1: All right, we'll open it up for live Q&A um, for anyone who would like to. So we'll have a mic being passed around.
2: Thanks. First of all, thank you for the work you do for your community. Um, I think many of ourselves, many of my colleagues, myself included, um, are from immigrant families. Uh, I'm first generation myself. Uh, I'm curious, your work is focused on lending a voice to those who might not have channels to voice their uh, needs. Um, Personally, how do you prioritize the needs of the communities you're hearing? Um, You motivate your, your, you mentioned you're motivated. Um, a lot by the pain. And I think um, you probably measure yourself by the impact that you're having. I can imagine that the impact that you don't get to have because you have to choose um, causes a lot of pain as well. But what goes into your mental calculus and how do you decide which of the issues you encounter on a daily basis uh, gets the ears that it deserves? Yes, yeah, so that's a very difficult question, especially with a very small budget you know, and a very small staff. Um, we constantly, I think we use that Google approach. We, and, and Daniel would tell you, we have a, a board, um, a to-do list board, and, um, and it's important people don't do it, right? They don't communicate. And so we sit there, literally, and we spend one or two hours prioritizing what's going on, whether it's a bill that's being introduced or whether it's a community that's in need. And we, we evaluate that. and. Um, and then we we deployed whatever resources that we have. So we have to be very, very strategic with what we do. And it's kind of and, and always reminds me of when I was in school, you know, the same thing. I had to prioritize, and and with a family, always mu- multitasking. And so, but that's how we that's how we gauge that because because you're right. There's so many issues. Like and, and right now with the current political. Um, climate it's very difficult whether it's immig- it could be immigration one day it could be um, bullying the next day it could be a, an incident that happened at another community and so it's a constant sometimes you're in three places at once if, the, if, if you think that's possible and we're making a call and an email and then physically going there so that's how we do it and, and again I, I, I work for God so um, he's guiding me and so in this work and very blessed to, to be doing that and, and again like this is part of it too like having this platform that Dominic has, has given me the opportunity um, is so great because we're talking to our people and at a, lot, a lot, larger scale than I've, I've ever done and so this is huge for me and so taking the time to come here and do this is very important So, but that's how we gauge and, and we try to, to do that
0: so from traveling around the state, what's the what's the current state of Michigan? Like if, if you're meeting with the governor, what's like the two, three minute uh, speech to update him as far as like what's happening in the, the Michigan community?
2: Yeah, it's so, and again, it depends, right? Like when it is, because sometimes it could be economic or, or whatever. So what we did, so what we did so that we don't have the two, three minutes is that we got a, a really good team together. Um, Daniel, he's a researcher, does all this with numbers and then we brought in um, Jose Mendez who, who was our designer. And so what we did, not just to 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 do that two minute or three minute spill, we did a, a whole um, a newsletter um, and we put the issues there along with a letter. And then through, through communication as well. So we, we try to, to be creative, almost like Google, man, but, you know try to put everything out quickly because you don't have time sometimes. And so I got the, the team to do that. And that has been very effective. It's helped us increase our budget. It has helped us you know go viral in terms of um, with uh, we got a standalone website. The governor approved, and there's only like four or five departments that have a similar, and we had the staff to do it too. So, and then to, to, to make it into bilingual, too, so that people that want to apply for a license or do something, they have that access. So um, that's how we've done it, through, through communication like that, through nice graphics, because we all know that nice graphics it gets people's attention. And so we've just been creative, you know? And when we do have that time, it's, um, it's quickly like, look, you have this coming, whatever, whatever, and, and, and we move on. But um, we're trying with what we have. It's like yeah being a migrant you 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 figure it out with a little time or little money. so
0: I'm trying to frame the question, but I was curious so I moved uh, from Mexico born and raised, I moved two years ago and I went through a long process
1: to get my citizenship I'm still trying to do that. So I have the, a lot of privilege that I can, Read and write in English, and afford a lawyer that helped me on, and it's been a very difficult process. So, after all this conversation, I'm just very curious how do these farmer workers get any help or any organizations that help them to, if they are aiming to get a citizenship, how do they get their, that help? Is there any, any ways for them to get it if they don't have either the means or the language
2: to do that? Sí, muchas gracias. Lo hizo en español, voy a contestar en español. I'm just kidding. But um, so, yes, there is a lot of organizations. And again, we have limited resources and limited. But we partner with a lot of great organizations that do that, um, pro bono, lawyers that have reached out to us and we can deploy resources quickly. Stuff that's in Spanish and English, which sometimes people don't think. And then there's people that can't even speak. Right? So, um, so for us, it's tag teaming. And, and if there's a, a place, say, for example, farmers, there's a, a community of migrants that can't read or write, um, letting that organization know so that they could deploy some, some, um, some lawyers that can go in and kind of answer those questions. We've also partnered with a Mexican consulado and, and, um, and done some work with them as well to send them to the community so that they could get their passport. Because some of them can't go. Or, or get um, registrations or whatever. So it's all about using what you have, and then um, putting putting things in place to make make it work. So that's some of the work that we're doing. Um, So I'm I'm so happy. So you work for Google? Yes. Man, great. You guys, you know, we're all over the place.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we're almost at time. Probably Mm -hmm. have time for one more question, if there is one.
2: Any burning questions? Oh we got one.
0: Um, first of all thank you for sharing your story. I think it was like a really touching and I mean impressive how you managed to break the cycle. I think that's kind of the, the key uh, over here. Uh, so my question is I mean uh, you were lucky a lot of us were lucky to have like a uh, mentors or to to run into people that actually made a difference uh, in our lives how do you say that can be scalable if you don't, for example, if you just don't have the opportunities and you just don't happen to, to step into someone that is willing to, to help you? Like how can we actually make that a, a bigger plan?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I th- and I think we we all need mentors, right? Like we, um, but if you don't, if you're not in those spaces, right, you don't get those opportunities. So what I would say is that we need, we as as, as, um, because now we're all here, we're in a, a place of privilege. We are mentors, whether we see it or not. So for me, it's just taking it to the next step. If if my wife gave me permission to go to Las Vegas for four days to work with those kids um, and going where they are, because there, there's no way they'll ever get to me. And, um, and I'm not even a big deal or anything, but I can go and maybe share some positivity. Um, then I'm willing to do that, whether it's there or whether it's going to Central America or, or wherever. Shoot, we were in, in Africa, and, and I learned so much from those folks. And um, and so, but but some people can't get out, right? Like they don't have the access or the privilege to do that. So I just think that us, we have a responsibility to um, to go out and, and and do that work and be intentional about it, and and. Um, yeah because everybody everybody needs something you know I think none of us in this room would have been here if we didn't have access to somebody that believed in us, and so it's critically important so yeah so for me it's just going out and doing it more and more intentional with a mission and and that's something that I do too to close this um, that that has has helped for me going out sometimes and I go and speak and I offer to mentor so i've i've uh, I go and, and, and I have mentees and I wake up at 6 a.m. I, I do that pledge to wake up at 6 a.m. with, with um, MSU college um, students and I walk during the entire school year and then I tell them the whole purpose of this is to build an army. So I'm going to mentor you. I'm committing that two hours or, or that whole semester, one hour each, each week. And then I expect for you to go back and mentor two people next year when you come. And that's how you, you build an army, right? So intentionally, they're going out and seeking that. So those are just some strategies that I've used. And so thank you for that question.
1: I just want to echo that. Just going into communities with intention. And then I think, secondly, meeting people where they are. Mm-hmm. Um, there's like sometimes this false expectation that People are just going to naturally be interested to speak to all of us, which Mm -hmm. I really think is false. And we have to be more aware and more willing to sometimes also take off like our Google hats and come in as people, approach people as Latinos, as Asians, as black people, as whatever your identity is Mm -hmm. to better connect and maybe break through to someone who might need it. So thank you so much. Um, Felipe, thank you for joining oh, us at pleasure. Google today. It was a pleasure, and really appreciate your authenticity and vulnerability to share your story. Um, so thank you so much for coming. Give a round of applause for Dr. Yeah, thank Felipe.
0: You. Thank you for listening to A Passion to Serve. You can now access all episodes of A Passion to Serve along with blog posts on my new website, apassiontoserve.net. I would love to hear your thoughts about the new website along with comments about the episode or episodes you've been listening to. Until next time.